Business class listeners, you're tuned in to Wisco Weekly, the podcast show by automotive executives for automotive entrepreneurs. for a hump day that is orcas that's the musical duo of the orcas and the song crazy for your love orcas are comprised of orel tamuz and mika sade i will put links on the episode page if you want to follow them on Bandcamp, spotify or youtube again that's Crazy for Your Love by the Orcas. Welcome, business class listeners, to another episode of Wisco Weekly. This is going to be a great and hopefully educational episode for you, like always. You know, one of the things I always like to say is tune in for the education, stay for the investments, and that's going to be certainly relevant today. As you know, I'm a, I like to trade a lot, and I can say that in a lot of ways. I've made a lot of good decisions and good trades, but... I'm not perfect, and I've made some very bad decisions and very bad trades. And one of those investments came in the way of XL Fleet, which was previously a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company. And so in this particular episode, I was blessed to feature the chief innovation officer at Marsh. Marsh is a publicly traded company under the stock symbol MMS, or I'm sorry, MMC on the New York Stock Exchange. They currently closed out, or they're trading right in the 120 mark, 123 to be exact, as of today. But the chief innovation officer, Machua Miet, joined me on the show where he specializes in knowing about SPACs, the risks associated with SPACs, And not just from the retail side, which that's in one way what we started talking about. We started talking more about if you're a retail investor, what are the dangers and what are the risks associated with SPACs? But we also talked about the flip side. What if you are so fortunate enough to have this windfall of money and now you get to become a director or an officer in which now you get to bring a company public? What are the risks associated with that? Well... That's what you get to hear and learn about today. So you're going to be stoked to hear from Machua Miet about the risks of SPACs from a retail trader perspective, as well as a director or officer perspective. Furthermore, next week coming on the show, uh, next week I want to feature two earnings reports, one from XL Fleet. I don't know what it is about XL Fleet. They took my money. But yet, I'm still somewhat emotionally invested in that company. So I want to play for you some of the highlights of the earnings call of XL Fleet, which happened today, today being Wednesday, March 31st, at the end of the bell. 
at the end of the trading bell, that is. And then also I want to play for you clips of the earnings call for MetroMile, another company that went public via a SPAC and also another company that I myself in, am invested in. And not only have I been invested in them, but I also use their products. I'm a user of their products. So you'll get to hear both of those episodes, both earnings calls or clips of those earnings calls next week. So be sure you are tuned in to the episode or tuned into the show. Furthermore, I encourage you to visit the episode page because Excel Fleet specifically has been charged uh, with a lawsuit. And I have outlined what that lawsuit is on the episode page. I, re- I read off what the complaint is on the episode, but it is pretty long-winded. So if you want to read what the complaint is, I've uh, listed it on the episode page for you to read and follow that. And then last thing, with regards to this particular episode with Machua Miyat, we did record this last week. So just keep that in mind, especially as I mentioned things with regards to the trading price of XL Fleet. Those prices were as of last week. If you take a look at what happened this week, they're even trading lower than they were last week. As always, be sure you stay tuned at the very end of the episode to hear the disclaimer from my fembot Fiona. Of course, none of the information you're hearing on this episode is meant to give you any sort of, well, the the information you will hear on the episode is just meant to serve as education, okay? And that will be clarified by my fembot Fiona. So without further ado, business class listeners, thanks for tuning in. Be sure you're subscribed to the show. And now let's get into the show. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Babuhai, bienvenidos, vitaita, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly Business Class listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the show. Oh, this episode's going to get heavy and deep. Are you ready for it? But look, even at the end of the day, as heavy and deep as this conversation may go, listeners, it's all for you. I don't want you to make the same mistake that I did. SPACs, you heard me talk about this already. SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies. These are a big thing in the investment world right now. I got burned with one. Full transparency here, listeners. Full transparency. Excel Fleet. I did not do very well on that stock. And I want to hopefully analyze what happened with that. And one of the things that has happened with SPACs and some of the different players now in the space, there's there's a lot of talk of you know what exactly these SPACs are doing, not just for the investors, but to the companies themselves. So in the case of XL Fleet, there was a recent lawsuit against them. And that's what we're going to kind of look at in today's episode. My guest today specializes in policy drafting, program placement, and claims advocacy regarding management and professional liability insurance issues for investment firms. He has spent 10 years defending these firms against regulatory investigations, derivatives, and class action security suits. My guest came to the United States by way of Nicaragua and Costa Rica. He studied at Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts, and received his JD from Harvard Law School. If you don't want to get burned by SPACs, then you will take heed of my guest's insights. Coming to us from Boston, Massachusetts, men, women, and children, please welcome to the show the Chief Innovation Officer at Marsh, Mr. Machua Miet. Machua, how are you? Hello, Dennis. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. 
Yes. Well, Machua, there you're going to provide so much depth and analysis here about what has happened with XL Fleet. Hopefully, again, this is a lesson for, I think, everyone involved looking into investing in SPACs. So business class listeners, XL Fleet right now is trading currently right in the $10 to $11 range. They opened up uh, via their SPAC or they went public via their SPAC back in, I think it was what, November, December. And it got as high to about $35, $36. And again, now it's trading at $10 to $11. Back towards the beginning of March, I believe it's March, there was a lawsuit brought upon them. And so, Machua, let me read what the claim was or the complaint, and then maybe you could talk us through what's going on here. Yeah? Sure. All right. So the complaint alleges the complaint alleges that the very statements the complaint quotes were false and misleading and that defendants failed to disclose to investors five things. One, that XL Fleet salespeople were pressured into inflate their sales pipelines. Two, that at least 18 of the 33 customers that XL featured were inactive. Three, that's XL technology had been materially overstated and offered only 5% to 10% of fleet savings. Four, that XL lacks the supply chain and engineers to roll out new products. Wow, that's a big one. Number five, that as a result of the foregoing, defendants' positive statements about the company's business operations and prospects were materially misleading. What the hell is going on there? So I think, first of all, it's important to take a step back and think about who's drafting the complaint, right? This complaint is draft, drafted by a plaintiff's lawyer, by a plaintiff's firm. And the way that they watch for potential litigation that they can bring is um, the plaintiff's securities bar will sit there and they have paralegals who watch their Bloomberg terminals. And they see if a particular stock price goes down. And it could be a DSPAC company like XL Fleet. It could be an IPO company like, say, you know, recently Airbnb or someone like that or it could just be a long-standing existing publicly traded company. But if there is a significant stock decrease, a downturn in the stock price, that plaintiff's lawyer will often announce an investigation, which is really an, an attempt to find a representative shareholder um, to be the named plaintiff in the suit, and then they will bring suit. And it is not necessarily about a, you know, a group of shareholders coming forward and declaring that they have been wronged. It's, it's about the stock price having gone down and then figuring out a theory for why that stock price, stock price went down when it did. And is that, is there, you know, who's culpable for that? And so this is pretty similar of a, to a lot of the public company securities litigation that we see where the allegation is essentially, there's some risk factor that the company and its officers and directors did not appropriately or sufficiently disclose in the public filings. And that because of that, the shareholders thought the situation was better than it was, made investments in the company, bought the, you know, the share, the stock at say 20, and built that stock price up to 35, perhaps. And then allegedly, when they figured out the truth, when the truth came out, down with the stock price. So that's kind of the way that the complaint has to be structured. And that's how Excel fleets is structured. Now, riddle me this, do you think that this is all true or is it a theory that's been come up with to explain why the stock price went down 
and by the very announcement of the suit, or perhaps by the announcement of a short seller report that disclosed this kind of information or alleged it, alleged it is that what really drove down the stock price, right? Now, I, I don't know who the company is or the plaintiff involved. I remember reading it somewhere. I know it's public somewhere. Do you know who it is? I do not recall who the plaintiff's lawyer is, but there's, there are five or six plaintiff's firms who bring almost all of this litigation. And and this again happened it towards the beginning of March, correct? Correct. That's when the which again was if you do March eighth, I believe. Which again, if you do look at their share price right around that time frame, then there was a few days of a big dip, uh, and now again, now it's kind of flattened out where it's currently trading. So yeah, you 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 posed exactly kind of the the philosophical as well as the legal question here mm-hmm. of. Was there actual any wrongdoing or is this kind of more grievance? Yeah. So it's it's interesting. And I, and I think this goes back to your basic premise, Dennis, of, of being careful as a retail investor, being a little bit careful about DSPACs. And quite honestly, it's about IPOs as well. I think we have seen. I, I'm sorry, Macho. So you're saying DSPAC. Why are you saying DSPAC versus just SPAC? Sure. So the actual SPAC. Um, is a bit back further in time. So the special purpose acquisition company that did a reverse merger with XL Fleet for it to become a public company, you would actually have to look back um, as far as maybe two or two and a half years to see where that SPAC, special purpose acquisition company, started. So what, the way that this works is it starts off with a group of individuals who go out into the marketplace with an S-1, which is a public offering document. And it's not about an operating company or anything like that. It's a group of individuals who say, here's our background, here's our experience. We're going to go out and find a really good company to do a reverse merger with. And when we do that, if you are an investor with us, you will make money. You will get shares in that newly public company and you will make money. So um, that is called a SPAC IPO and they file an S-1 and it's a blank check company. It's also called a blank check company, which means they don't have any operations. They're just looking for a reverse merger target. In the last year and a half, two years, we have seen about 500 of these SPACs launch. And within the next two or three months, we will see another two or 300 more. So there are seven or 800 SPACs out there looking for target companies. They have a two year investment period where they can go find a target and complete the reverse merger, also known as a business combination or a DSPAC transaction. I so see. The reason why okay. I'm referring to XL Fleet as a DSPAC company is they went through that reverse merger. Instead of doing an IPO or a direct listing or another way of going public, they went public through that DSPAC transaction and came out the other side. So what I was saying is, I do think there's reason for retail investors to be cautious about newly public companies in general. Make sure that you have done as much research as possible about the short-term and long-term um, you know, potential for that company. Because I do think these days with IPOs and with DSPACs, we see a fair amount of exuberance, sort of retail investor exuberance when there's a new company. Sounds exciting. Sounds like kind of a sexy concept. I'm going to put my money into that and hopefully, you know, that stock will go up significantly. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. 
but we're, what I think we're starting to see more and more of these days is it'll go up in the first month or two, but then it will settle back down into some lower number where perhaps it belonged in the first place. So commentators like to call that irrational exuberance, right? Sounds really exciting. <laughs> I'm going to invest in that company. It goes up, you're all excited, and then it comes back down and you're kind of disappointed. But honestly, if you'd invested at 10 bucks and it was at 20 bucks a share, you'd, you'd feel pretty good about that. Yeah. The, I mean, so my take on all this is like the, 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 the most basic form of how I'm interpreting this is the chairman of Pivotal Investment Corporation, which I think is the name of the, the SPAC, mm -hmm. John Ledetsky, in which I've discovered that Ledetsky is of Czech descent. And so when I saw that last name, I just, my wife is Czech. So it's like easy for me to then see his name and say Ledetsky. That's the way you pronounce it. So he, he's the, who, he's the co-owner of what sports team? Do you remember? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, he's the co-owner of, he's the co-owner of the NHL team, New York Islanders. Okay. And so I take this as John and his team made a very calculated investment to bring a company like XL Fleet. XL Fleet is an commercial uh, electric vehicle modifier, if you will. They take existing trucks, GM, Ford, Chevy, that are working with governments. And rather than trying to either purchase a new fuel-efficient truck, they will take the existing engine and put in a battery, put in an electric drivetrain, and then, you know, essentially make it more fuel-efficient without having to go through the process of replacing that vehicle altogether. In my head, I'm like, that's that's brilliant, right? Yeah. Especially in the political climate. In the political climate, with the Biden presidency, you're going to see more of these green initiatives coming forward. So then it's like XL Fleet makes sense in a lot of ways. And so John and his team make a very, made a very good calculation, brought XL Fleet public. I th was thinking, yes, that's this seems really good. Mm -hmm. But obviously there has now been some, again, I'm going to call it grievance because at the end of the day, yes, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. an individual private investor. I, I can only, I do have to do my research. I can only learn as much. However, at the same time too, I, I think there's still some merit bringing this co company public for as long as they can maintain, you know, operations, which that is the one thing that is called into question according to this complaint though, too. Yep. So here's a question for you. Did, did you sell? I did. Okay. So what happens if the stock goes back up steadily over the next few years? Um, you're going to wish you would held on to it, right? So, you know, it's funny. I, I think about this sometimes, like if I just took my son to McDonald's on the way home from school, right? And, and he had the McFlurry and he's like, man, I, I love the M&M McFlurry. It's so good. And I said, you know, if a lot of people feel that way and they do, m and you know, McDonald's is a pretty good company, but I'm not going to go buy McDonald's stock because the McFlurry is really good because I know that people have already factored that into the stock price. That's why the McDonald's stock price is where it is, right? The thing about these new companies is they're more exciting, but also a little bit more, a little bit scarier, I think, because you're thinking about so much about potential, right? And, and, and based upon how that potential develops, they could go way up or way down. Okay. So, so I took that into consideration with XL Fleet. And I think one of the things that convinced me of their potential was the fact that they have been in operations for some time already. Yep. 
And so at least it's not a company that just was formed two, three years ago, right? They, they have relationships already with governments. They've been doing business already. They have, you know, their technology is as good as can be near perfect, depending on what, what you want to define as, you know, as, as perfect. So they, they did have a, they had a little bit of a track record already. Yeah. And, and look, I think, and, you know, one thing I might add to your consideration when you are considering investing in a, a, a back company like that is to is to take, go one step further back in the process and think about who is on the SPAC team who is doing that reverse merger. So you've done a little bit of that research after the fact now, right? And, and I'm, and I'm not, I'm not <laughs> hey, throwing, hey man, I don't, I don't need you Monday morning quarterbacking this situation here. <laughs> I'm not throwing any stones in terms of the SPAC team at all. Um, but it, it makes some sense to go back and say, okay, if this company went public through a reverse merger, through a DSPAC, who is the team who made a bet on them? Because they are making a bet on, on that company as well. And look at that, that SPAC team's experience, expertise, track record, what have you. And that's actually how the insurance company underwriters do their job of underwriting the SPAC and the DSPAC company. They consider a lot of the same factors that you have, as well as the quality of the team and their track record and what have you. And if you looked back, and, and this is not Excel fleet, but if you were looking at a, another company and you said, wow, the, the SPAC team that chose to do this deal doesn't have a whole lot of experience. And, and in fact, actually, they have a couple scandals in their background and what have you. You might think a little bit differently about that company, right? Um, and that's what the underwriters do when they're thinking about whether or not to give insurance. They are way more focused on the potential downside than the potential upside, but they're evaluating those same factors. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. Uh, in terms of gaining access to that type of information is probably a little bit more difficult though, right? Trying to essentially find out companies like Marsh, companies like yours, like who, who are you guys underwriting in order to then pre-qualify that spec? Uh, yes, it is. It is difficult to find out sort of who are the insurers choosing to deploy their capital for That's typically mm -hmm. private information. Um, and we're an insurance broker, right? So we're setting up the relationships. We're working on behalf of the SPAC team or a company like XL fleet to obtain insurance for them from insurers. I was saying more in terms of, doing your own due diligence on the SPAC team and, and on the, and on the executive uh -huh. team and, and board membership at the target company as well. So it's a big part of sort of considering, you know, you have the idea, you have the business and then you have the team. And if those three all line up in a pretty positive way, um, it might make even more sense. Now, Dennis, I will caution you. I think you and I talked about this before, I only own stock in two public companies and I've only ever owned stock in two public companies and they're very specific reasons why. And please state them for the record. One is my employer and um, it's part of my compensation and the other is Airbnb. And I was granted direct offering stock as, as, a, as a host on Airbnb, a longtime host. I was offered direct offering pricing on their IPO. And it's, okay, so so business class listeners, you're listening to Machua Miet from Marsh. Uh, Machua is, has been heavily involved in these SPACs and analyzing them. Uh, obviously, he's sharing a lot of inside information on how us as retail investors can understand better SPACs so we can make better investment choices. So I want to get to 
I want to flip the script and go away from the retail investor side and let's go to the the team side, the director side, because I want to be on that side now, right? You, you, you're going to go in on with me, right? Okay. You're, you and me and, and everyone else, we're going to be on the investing side, yeah? Yeah. But before we do, though, before we get to that part, I do want to talk about Airbnb. I think actually hearing about that you were a host or you are a host and Airbnb uh, offered you shares of their um, of their of their stock price. Super, super interesting. I've had the li- chance to listen to Brian Chesky on the Masters of Scale podcast, where he really broke down the timeline of what happened prior to the pandemic, the the pivots that were made during the pandemic, and some of the decisions that they made in in achieving their goal of going public. And so when I first heard that you receive shares, I later on eventually heard Brian Chesky saying that this is something they plan to do. Mm-hmm. And so now you have shares in Airbnb as a host. How was that process introduced to you? So first, yes, I'm a longtime host on Airbnb, but I'm a longtime user as well. So we have rented apartments and homes in, in Europe, in, in Latin America, in, all over the U.S., um, over the years for my wife and myself, but also for um, my two boys as well as we traveled around. And so it, um, and then we rent our house in Puerto Rico on there. So we have a beach house in Puerto Rico. And in fact, someone's checking in today um, from Airbnb. So hopefully they'll give me a good rating. We shall see. (laughs) (laughs) So um, it's it's been a great company for us. And it's been, you know, it's kind of like your, your example about XL fleet or mine about McDonald's, right? It's been a great experience. And I, so from that perspective, I think it's a great company. Doesn't mean I know the fundamentals in terms of investing or not investing in the company. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But um, I was contacted, I want to say a couple of weeks before the IPO date um, by email um, informed that there was a possibility that there would be an offering of, of direct um, shares for hosts. And then if I were interested, I needed to respond to the email. That was the first step. No commitment, just a response by email. I responded okay. and said, yes, I'm interested. Then there was sort of a second reach out that said, um, you need to tell us how many shares you would want to buy up to a certain number if you were given the opportunity to do so. Still no commitment. So I took the maximum that I could get. Um, figured it would Which be was investment. 200 shares. And then finally, there was the moment of truth where um, the IPO happened. And the question was, do you want to buy these? And if so, here are the, here's the information to transfer um, you know, cash and, and what have you, and went and did it. And then like anybody else, sort of sat on my hands and worried about you know, what was going to happen and what have you. And pretty quickly, um, it became clear that um, that was probably a pretty good investment. Amen. That, I hear you. I'm with us. you on that. Doesn't mean I don't watch the Airbnb stock every day and sort of suffer as it goes, you know, from 190 down to 185, and you know, sort of celebrate when it goes over 200. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm with you in terms of being a similar Airbnb investor. I bought, I think my cost was about 135-ish, right around there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's trading near 200. So I'm doing pretty well, and I, you know, I ha- have also had very good experiences with Airbnb. I do think that that company has a potential uh, to do great things for the industry that perhaps is not obvious at this moment. 
So, you know, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. I, th- I think, you know, from my perspective in terms of as an, as a, as a company and as an investment, some of the, some of the headwinds that they might encounter do have a lot to do with sort of regulation around the world and limitations that different cities might, might put on it um, largely based upon pressure from, from hotels and, and, and sort of more, more well-established hospitality industry and what have you much like the other um, sharing economy companies have seen some regulatory pressure as well. But it seems to me that um, that model has, has largely been figured out in terms of how to balance the benefit to consumers with the benefit to participants with the, with the potential downside to the industry and payment of taxes and what have you. That's become a lot more formalized. So hopefully we have found a balance between those things, uh, whether it's Uber or Lyft or Airbnb or any of the sort of sharing economy approaches. Well said, well said. Okay, let's go back now in time to the directors and officers of a company. So advise me here, not as my attorney, even though you are an attorney, he's not my attorney. Advise me though, and other business class listeners, if we are presented with the opportunity to become a director in a company to take you know take another company public via a spac what do i as as any savvy investor we're always worried about risk analysis right or risk management so what risks should i be aware of and how can i be protected against the downside of that risk so how you would be approached would probably be as the executive team was starting to put together the spac you would be approached to either be another, you know, a team member, one of the executives on it, or to be a director of the SPAC. And I think two two major questions up front um, for anyone contemplating public company board services. Number one, could I please see my indemnification agreement? I want to make sure that I am indemnified by the company to the extent that it has money is available to indemnify me. I want to make sure that I'm indemnified for what I'm doing. And number two, what does the DNO insurance look like? The directors and officers liability insurance. What does that look like? Um, or what are we going to buy as we launch as a SPAC? Because at that point, the SPAC is going to be conceptual and the executive team is going to be working out the accounting arrangements, the legal arrangements, the formation of the SPAC entity and its sponsor, et cetera, et cetera. And they're also going to be talking to someone like us here at Marsh about putting together an insurance program for the directors and officers of the SPAC. And there's a lot of nuances to the insurance and, and what have you, but at the end of the day, you want to know essentially, um, I am covered for whatever I do in my status and capacity as, an, as a director, short of intentional fraud for which you would never be covered. Um, if you're accused of it, you might have defense cost coverage, but you will never have coverage for actually you know, finally adjudicated fraud, but am I covered for everything else that I do in this position? And do I have enough money there? Is there enough, you know, limit on this insurance that I should feel comfortable that whatever kind of litigation might come in, I will actually be adequately protected? That's the major question. Now, I think directors, particularly independent directors of a SPAC or any other public company should be doing a little bit of their own due diligence these days as well of, what am I getting myself into? Who am I, who am I getting into this situation with? So some of the same sort of, of diligence and, and, and research about who is the executive team? 
who are the other directors, make sure that you're comfortable with them and their track record um, and, and their experience to make sure you feel like you're going to end up doing a good deal at the end of the day. Because I, I can assure you that most, if not all of these teams, certainly think that long-term is everything's gonna work out great and it's gonna be successful. But the question is, what happens if it doesn't? And that's why you need that indemnification insurance. Macho, you're, you're, I don't know if in a previous life or in a future life, you're looking to become a professor, sir, but you, you <laughs> definitely have a way of explaining these things that actually is very simple and, you know, common sense. And, you know, it's like, I, I feel like I have enough, all, I have all the information now to, to dump, jump right into it, but, but we'll, we'll, we'll slow down a bit here. So I will say there's a, my wife would like to retire to Lyon, France, and there is a law school in Lyon. And if I can learn some French or they will let me teach in English, um, I certainly wouldn't mind retiring there and doing that. That's for sure. Well, that actually takes me to a question I was going to ask you here, which is uh, a question I asked all my guests. Um, and this is the type, this is the segment in the show that I label as bedroom sessions where I get to be a little bit more intimate with my guests oh, to get inside their head. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, baby. Oh, yeah. So, Machua, I mean, that's actually a very interesting dream aspiration you have. And I, th and I did notice then on your LinkedIn profile that there is some reference to you studying, wanting to learn French, your beginner, intermediate, whatever it may be. Yep. So that makes sense in wanting to study or wanting to teach at this law school in Lyon. So I have a question here for you. You have two boys, yep. you have your wife, you have dreams. The question I always ask to my guests, and it's very specific, so I know you as an attorney, you should appreciate the specificity of this question. What would you like to accomplish with your money that would be most meaningful to you? It's a great question, by the way. Um, and and it's, it's very specific, but it's a, it's a difficult one. It, re, it, it probably results in a lot of sort of wide-ranging, sweeping responses for such a specific question. Well, and certainly, again, I, I know that there's not, I, I know this for a fact, all of my guests have never been asked this question. And so I actually like asking them this because it will make you think, but I, if anything, I'm, it's kind of curious what comes out of people's mouths. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think um, I have always strived to maintain a, a comfortable lifestyle for my family, not, not wealthy, but a comfortable lifestyle for my family. Um, both my wife, myself, and my boys. I am not someone who is looking to leave millions of dollars to my children such that they don't have to, you know, work or what have you. Um, that's not not my style. I grew up pretty, pretty basic means myself. Um, grew up on a farm in Nicaragua and then in Costa Rica and then on a number of farms in the U.S. in sort of rural situations. Um, Blue-collar family. My mom was a single mom for years as a teacher and what have you. So, I am not sort of looking to leave millions or billions of dollars behind to support my children. I think my goal ultimately is to give back to my communities as best I can and also establish a comfortable retirement for, for my wife and myself. Um, one of the things that I've found interesting during COVID, we don't have a whole heck of a lot of um, things that we can do, right? We can't necessarily go out and do all the things we used to do. And that's resulted in a lot of people focusing, I think, more and more on work. So I think your question is a great one. 
which is if you're going to work this hard to make the money that you make and perhaps make more money, what is your goal with that? And that's, that's certainly one of mine um, is, is to, to create a comfortable retirement lifestyle, not lavish, but comfortable um, for my wife and I. And we did plan ahead. Our children are both out of the house by the time we're 50. And they've been informed that they're not welcome to return. They can come visit, <laughs> but they are not welcome to move back in. I think that happens a lot these days. So the idea is by 50, be ready to you know, try some different places, travel around, um, work particularly remotely now, you know, why not? So London, Paris, uh, Lisbon, what have you. Um, and I did mention also giving back to my communities. Um, Nicaragua is a very poor country and I've certainly tried to invest in my hometown in Nicaragua directly through some friends and what have you, but also more generally. And um, go back to my high school as well. I've done my best to try to help out. It's a rural public school in upstate New York, not a lot of resources and have tried to help them out as well. And then back at um, Harvard Law School and Tufts to give money to, to finance in particular, financial aid for underprivileged and minority students as well. My wife is African-American, I'm Latino, and so it's important to me to provide support for young people who are looking to study at those institutions as well. Wow. See, there's that the was... that's the wide-ranging answer. <laughs> well, it is the wide-ranging answer. If anything, one of the things I was thinking about as you were enumerating these things was like, what's the common theme that pinpoints back to you? And I can't help but just pin it to like just your sense of family and community, right? It's like, it kind of boils down to those things, family values. And then also, you know, the communities that you specifically have been involved in, if it's the actual country community of Nicaragua, or if it is the association to, uh, to your colleges. Yep. No, absolutely. Definitely. No, I mean, look, there's a number of experiences that le left a real impression on me. You don't grow up in the middle of nowhere in Nicaragua and have that not sort of um, sit inside you for the rest of your life. You don't forget about that. Same with going to, you know, a little public school in upstate New York with it's 37 other kids in your graduating class. Um, you don't forget those people. You don't forget that that school and the teachers who were there. So and, and look, college and, and law school are very formative times as well. And they were great institutions. So. Definitely made an impact on me, opened up a, a whole world for me, and I'd love to be able to help them do that for others as well. Amen. Okay, Macho, last question here for you. And again, we're going to have to maybe talk through this play-by-play -play for for our listeners here. You've seen the movie Gladiator, I presume? Yes, I have. A couple times. So I, I would hope more than a couple times. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've watched it a very, very number of times. It's just a great movie overall. But you know that uh, Caesar, uh, what's his name? Uh, River, not River Phoenix. What? Joaquin yes, Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. He plays the role of Caesar. He eventually has the crowd vote up or down with a thumb on whatever he's asking. Right. Yeah. In your case, I want to ask you: SPACs or DSPACs, thumb up or a thumb down? I think it's a thumb up for me, and the reason I say that is that. Although the current rate of SPACs um, may long-term not be sustainable um, and you may see a slowdown, I think 
at its base, there are fundamental reasons why this SPAC boom has happened, which is that it has become very difficult and very costly for private companies to complete an IPO. And the SPAC and DSPAC process provides an opportunity for large private companies who, but for the difficulty, would be successful public companies to do so. We have seen a significant decrease in the number of public companies in the U.S. over the last five or 10 years through, through mergers and acquisitions, but also through um, public to private transactions and bankruptcies and what have you. And we have not seen those companies replaced. So I do think that there are a lot of factors, economic, political, um, tax, what have you, that led to this boom. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't you know, necessarily some companies that are caught up in the exuberance of it, sure. Um, but I think overall, I think it's thumbs up and I think it's a positive for the economy. I think it's po a positive for investors overall. And I'm, I'm more than a little cautiously optimistic that it will, it will be a good thing. And ultimately, as it slows down, it will continue to be a, a vehicle that we see is perhaps not at the at the sheer volume we're seeing it now. Macho, thank you for all your information, all your insights, sir. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. How, how do you say, I, I presume to say cheers in Nicaraguan as well as Costa Rica, it's just salud, right? All, it's all part of that, correct? Correct. Salud. All so right. There's actually, there's actually um, if, you, if you do it four times, you say salud, dinero y amor y tiempo para gozarlos. So it's health, money, and love. love, and time to enjoy them. And time to enjoy them. Oh, that's the key part. I yes, love that. <laughs> Business class listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. As we end every episode, cheers, prost, lachaim, kipis, nastravi, salut, kampai, mabruk, tutsins, gambe, yamas, nastarovie, vo, salute, and saudi to the customer experience. Business class listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. If you enjoyed the show, please do provide Wisco Weekly a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'll be here again next week. Wisco Weekly is providing this information for educational purposes only. We are not providing legal, accounting, or financial advisory services, and this is not a solicitation or recommendation to buy or sell any stocks, options, or other financial instruments or investments. Examples that address specific assets, stocks, options or other financial instrument transactions are for illustrative purposes only and may not represent specific trades or transactions that we have conducted. In fact, we may use examples that are different or the opposite of transactions we have conducted or positions we hold. This site and any information or training therein is also not intended as a solicitation for any future relationship, business or otherwise between the members or participants and the moderators. No express or implied warranties are being made with respect to these services and products. All investing and trading in the securities market involves risk. Any decisions to place trades in the financial markets, including trading in stock or options or other financial instruments, is a personal decision that should only be made after thorough research, including a personal risk and financial assessment, and the engagement of professional assistance to the extent you believe necessary.